Welcome everyone to episode 43 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? All right, so yet again, it's been a while. Um, long story short, the real world has just hit Remy and I kind of nonstop for the last few months. I know we got a few Substacks articles written and then and then more real world hit. We had a few episodes come out around uh, you know, almost, I think, over a month. And again, just a lot of real world shit hit us. But um, things are a little stable now, a little more stable at least, and we're going to hopefully be back to a you know weekly episode basis. If not, you know, real world takes priority. Sorry for that. But with that, let's uh, jump over to our first topic. Um, something we talked about offline, Remy and I, is what we call the Wally effect. For those of you who have read Dilbert, you're familiar with the character Wally. He's short, bald, kind of goofy, and puts more effort into not doing work than doing actual work. And he's always got a scam up his sleeves. Um, it's guaranteed that if you're reading Dilbert and you see a Wally, uh, a Wally strip, it's going to be funny and it's going to be something you can relate to. Like you, every organization has a Wally. And the thing I've come to realize and, and what we've been talking about is Wally is a necessary function. Once your company hits a certain size, you need a Wally there. Um, kind of as a barometer to your own insanity and to understand kind of what it, it shows the flaws in your system, right? It, it's something like that. You'll, you'll have a guy who can navigate the halls of your organization without ever doing any real work. And you don't fire him because by watching him, you can plug the gaps knowing that you're stopping more wallies from spreading but also knowing that he's going to find the next gap in your uh, productivity or um, he's going to find the next loophole to pro productivity. And that's kind of what you're employing him for is to find the weaknesses. So this is a, this is a great point um, because I definitely see lots of opportunities for Wally's to help you ferret out all the things that need to get fixed. How do you have a Wally without making everybody roll their eyes? Or do you just accept that they're going to roll their eyes and be like, why is that guy getting a paycheck? If you have a good Wally, people won't even notice, right? There, there's there's multiple types of Wallies to have, and a lot of people, when they're in the like, it, within the Dilbert comic strip, Dilbert's the only one who really catches on to the fact that Wally's useless. The boss kind of said the pointy-haired boss kind of picks up on the fact, but he never can figure it out. Um, but within the organization, you have a lot of people that won't pick up on the fact that this guy's never doing anything. He's the guy who's you ever, you ever seen somebody walk around with a clipboard all day looking busy, but he's never doing anything? The clipboard is just empty papers. That's a version of Wally. Um, when I was in the military, there's guys who you just keep wondering, how have you not been thrown out yet? And they're, they're like comedic relief, right? That's another version of a Wally. Um, we've had people in my organization who they keep ascending the ranks. Like we had a guy make a, um, God, how do I say this without doxing? He got to a significant promotion level as an officer with a GED, not even a high school degree. And that's, he's actually a very intelligent person, but throughout his entire career, there's just constantly these red flags going up of like, what's up with this guy? But he's never broken the law. He's never broken a regulation. He's never done anything dangerous. He's never done anything outright bad. He just walks that line constantly where you're like, you know, you expect him to roll through the hallway on a unicycle, juggling, you know, bowling pins with a big rubber nose. 
And if he did it, nothing would happen. And he won't, nor would he drop the bowling pins or run, or run into anybody or anything comedic. He'd just roll through and keep going on with life. Those are the types of people, I shouldn't say people, that's the type of person you want you, as your wallet. You don't want more than one. But people just kind of don't know how they keep going by. And somehow work keeps getting done in spite of them or around them, even though they've never had a direct connection to the work. That's the other amazing thing is that somehow they never do any actual work, but all the work around them gets done and nobody's complaining about it. It's, it's a weird phenomenon. So how do you spot a Wally ahead of time so you can hire him and not a bad Wally? Well, technically speaking, they're all bad Wallys. You know, you have a, again, it's not a productive employee. They're not producing anything. What they're doing is showing you all the people that they're showing you ways people will take advantage of your organization and not produce. And that's kind of where you have to pay attention. You have to know your people. You have to know who's getting actual production and who's always too busy to be producing, right? Not excuses like, Oh, my, you know, my kid's sick. I can't come in today or I need to leave early because of bullshit excuses. Somebody who's always, before I do that project, boss, I have to take care of this task, right? And then when you go, oh, okay, wait a minute, that task doesn't exist. You know, you're out there uh, counting um, pygmy flanges in, in the warehouse, and we don't make pygmy flanges. So that's not a real thing, right? That's the type of thing you have to watch for is guys who are just always, they've always got a project out prioritizing the project you want them to do, and the project never truly exists. Um, and again, sometimes it's not that literal. Sometimes they're they're attached to projects, but they're just weaseling their way through. Um, it's that kind of stuff you have to watch for. I mean, I would say the best training is to actually read the Dilbert comic strip and start looking how, look at Wally's language and look for that. That's actually like probably, it, it sounds too simple and kind of stupid, but it really is. The, the more you read the, the Dilbert strips and the Wally based ones, the more you'll recognize the Wally in your but how do you spot a Wally that's useful versus a Wally that just destroys team morale and, and is really sloppy and, and careless? Um, I don't know how to spot it ahead of time, but I can tell you if people are generally not frustrated with the person and you can recognize that they're not, that they're maneuvering in this manner, that's your sign, right? Uh, when people are complaining about somebody and wanting them gone, then you fire them. But when you have a person who's maneuvering like this. And again, you're not going to do this at a small business level where there's like 10 of you. It can't work on that small of a scale. It's got to be in a bigger organization where you've got dozens, if not hundreds of employees. It has to be enough space for him to have cover. It's why they, there's a lot of Wallies in the army because or in army, Navy, Marines everywhere and in all the military branches, because there's a, there's just hundreds of people around all the time. You can constantly, you always have a place to hide basically. Right. So you don't have that in a small organization. So that's, I don't know how to spot them on day one though. That's the thing. So you're thinking the minimum size organization, obviously give or take a few, cause it depends on what you're doing and, and how close knit everybody is, but you're thinking minimum threshold is about 25 employees or so. I would, I was going to say 50, but it could probably work at 25, 25, I think is, I mean, where do you, where do Pareto distribution start setting in? Right. Because when it's a business of you and three people, the Pareto distribution isn't going to really work out because um, it's too small a sample size. Uh, ten employees, I doubt in ten employees, two people are doing 50 percent of the work, you know, maybe as the owner. But 
realistic sense, you need enough people for a Pareto distribution to set in. And once once you get to that, that where, where that's applicable, I think that's where you can start to see the Wally effect. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I see a lot of companies, uh, I don't know if there's a term for this, but like the minimum viable size of a company is getting smaller and smaller. So meaning like uh, a company that had to be 100 employees before can now get by with 25 and soon it'll be 10. Um, that kind of thing is happening a lot. And so it makes it so that a lot of these companies, it'll be really easy to spot these wallies or maybe they won't have a place to go or they'll all just end up in the government or the military or whatever. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, and maybe, maybe a good thing <laughs> because the smaller a company is, generally the more efficient it is. It just doesn't have the resources to pay for specialists, right? So if you're running a small company, you've got to be the accountant, the attorney, a whole bunch of stuff at the same time. And uh, for example, one of the things I'm really dealing with right now is I don't have enough specialists in one of my companies to be able to navigate all the government fucktardedness. Uh, and so I'm just constantly taking it on the nose or taking it on the chin, right? I don't know that that when you go through this specific form and fill it out this way per the directions, you, f- you send it in and it won't get processed, right? Um, but uh, specialist for consulting companies such and such does that all day long and he knows that you have to make X, Y, and Z errors on the form for it to get processed properly. Uh, that kind of bullshit. <laughs> So if, once you get past that stage, um, you, you hit this kind of happy medium of you've got enough specialists who know how to sidestep the bullshit, sidestep the absurdity and the, and the competency crisis um, to deal with government and big companies and such like that. Um, but you're still small enough that each person is overseeing a lot of things focused or, and housed entirely in one brain, right? So you don't have all these, these slow communication channels between employees, between departments, et cetera. Um, anyway, that was a little off topic, but uh, I'm still interested in this uh, in um, Dilbert. So, are there other characters in Dilbert that are like, "Hey, this is really good management training for for knowing how to run a company"? There are, but before I answer that, uh, and, and remember that question in case I forget as I'm talking here, there's another point I want to bring up about Wally is what he might look like in the future as these companies downsize due to AI, useless people, competency crisis, etc and exporting more of the work to consultants, a variation you will see of the Wally will be a guy who starts a consulting company to help say 10 companies do a thing, or maybe he gets hired to do work from home, right? As a straight up employee, not a consultant, whatever it is, then proceeds to outsource that work to Prajit over through Fiverr for four bucks an hour. And you've got, let's just say you do four jobs at $25 an hour, and you're paying paying per jeet five dollars an hour. You're making twenty dollars an hour per job. And if you do that to, to four per jeets, you're making eighty bucks an hour for offloading the work. That's another version of Wally that you're going to see is you're paying this dude or his consulting company or whatever x amount of dollars per hour or per contract, and he's sending it out to a third world country who has internet access and Starlink. And you could have done that yourself, right? That's another variation of the Wally effect where he's going to be a useless middleman collecting money between people who don't know these tricks. That's going to be another Wallyism, And you'll spot, instead of spotting an employee who's a Wally, you're going to have a, you're going to hire a consultant to do a thing for you, realizing they're not doing anything and you're paying them. That's going to be the, the next variation. Of- 
Uh, oh my gosh, I've already seen it. So wait, what's the damage in that scenario? What's the damage of of him outsourcing it? Is he going to screw up something that, for the very reason that you you wanted a you know a local employee or something to do it? There may be no damage other than you're overpaying, right? The damage may be that you're paying him twenty five dollars an hour to do a thing, but you're getting fifty dollars an hour worth of production out of him. Only you could be paying somebody five dollars an hour and pocketing forty five dollars. You know, like it could just be a difference of margins, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be that you're losing anything. It could simply be that you're paying for a service that doesn't need to exist. Mm-hmm. So again, you need to hire the Wallies, right, to sniff these things out for you. So you may hire them once, take you know, and just eat the the extra cost, and then now you know where these these inefficiencies are that you can pounce on. <laughs> well, and and here's the great test to know if you're dealing with if you ever had to deal with a Brigitte, okay? Any woman, let me, let me rephrase that. Any woman who has to deal with a Brigitte will understand the symptomics and what symptomics really is because it only takes about 5 seconds for Brigitte to start uh filling your DMs with, you know, show me pics of Bajine and Bob. And that's how they spell it, Budgene and Bob, B-O-B. So if you're curious at any point, if you're dealing with a third, if you're dealing with Prajit's on the down low, yeah, if you've got some Wally type contract going out to Prajit, just get a female in front of the, uh, the guy who's doing the work and you'll find out right away what you're dealing with. They cannot help themselves. So what does that mean? Like Prajit is... is uh, I- I guess on the phone or something. How do you how do you have that interaction in a way that you can watch and, and that you and that he knows it's a female and starts simping? Um, I mean, there's a lot of. It really comes down to what your business is doing, what your female employee is. But the basic thing would be, if she can email him directly and have a profile pic of a woman, or in this case, you email him directly with a profile pic of a woman, right? Have AI generate you a, a female profile pic. But something that makes him think he's talking directly, that'll make the symptomics come out. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Prajit is class A symptomics <laughs> for sure. <laughs> it's just, I've never seen something like I've seen from Prajit. <laughs> I'm telling you, he can't help himself. You might as well have a 12 year old boy who's alone in the house, right? It's the same damn thing. It's just, the work is great right up until there's a chance of seeing a nipple and then their minds just, it just goes right to Bob, Vagina and Bob's, Vagina and Bob, show me Vagina and Bob. They, they can't help themselves. Yeah. Okay. So back to that prior question, are there other Dilbert characters that are important for learning to run a business? Yes. The next one is the pointy haired boss because you, you, if you at any point you see yourself and there's that, the, the pointy haired boss and the bald um, CEO. If at any point you're doing things that they are doing, you are wrong. If you read a strip and you go, wait, I've done a similar thing before, or I've had an employee float me that stupid idea and I signed off on it, right? If you, at any point you do that, like they're, you're not looking at them for what to do. You're looking at them for what not to do, okay? Um, and then the, the next two, who both have equal weight are Dilbert and Catbert. Although I haven't seen Catbert lately, uh, but now that he's got Dilbert behind a paywall, I'm a little, I'm kind of behind. I, I really just need to shell out the three dollars because it's three freaking dollars. Um, 
but those two help you know if your moral compass is going off the rails because the two of them, Gilbert and Capert, they'll do anything to make a buck or not even just to make a buck, but to see what they can get away with. You know, they're always running scams of a sort because they know they can. Uh, he had all kinds of gold on the work from home stuff during the COVID lockdowns. So, you know, again, if you read those ones and you, you, you start aligning, if you, you feel that you've empathized with Gilbert and Capert, that's a good sign that either you're surrounded by NPCs or your moral compass has just gone off the rails. Um, but you'll make more money that way too. Dilbert tries that? No. Dogbert. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Dogbert. Yeah, Dogbert. Dogbert yeah. and Capper. Yeah, excuse me. I, I slip of the tongue. Dogbert yeah. and Capper. Yeah. How about any how about any of the others? Uh, all the others have their place, but I mean those are the really those are the big ones to, to pay attention to. But just in general, like Elon Musk had a rule that he goes at uh, Tesla that uh, he was known for for don't do anything that could wind up on a Dilbert comic strip. And that's, that's a good rule to live by. And that's a good reason to keep reading the comic strip in general, because as soon as you read something and go, Oh, I did that. You know, you fucked up. You, there's no question you messed up. There's no like, well, he, he misportrayed it this way or that was like, no, you did a thing that's in Dilbert. You fucked up. Yeah. It it always amazes me how, um, straightforward businesses and how many good resources there are that are darn near free. Um, you know, Scott Adams knows the whole, the whole gamut of, <laughs> and, and wrote it out in Dilbert, right? And so do you really need two or three years of, of business education in a college setting to, to understand that? Or do you just start a business, start dealing with the stuff and, <laughs> and look to these resources as you need them? Let me, let me make a rather bold prediction or, or statement that a lot of people will, uh, I really hope that pop-up didn't just, anyway, sorry. Um, let me make a rather bold statement here that a lot of people will laugh at, but I would lay down money is true. Let's say at an early age, you give Remy Jr. a uh, IQ test, right? And you say he's going to have an IQ of, I don't know, 135, 140, right? He's above well above average, and he's going to have a good memory and correlation to memory. You could sit him down probably at age... I don't know, eight or nine and let him start reading Dilbert comics going back to the nineties and just give him more comic strips to read that by the time he's 15, he's read the entire volume of, of Dilbert library and then say, go start a business. And I bet he'll be having read the entire Dilbert library of the past 30 years. He will do better than somebody who went off to business school. And, and, and the, the, the asterisk on that is the person reading the 30 years worth of comic strips has to have the memory and ability to correlate what he's read. But with that assumption that they've got the IQ to do that, those Dilbert comic strips will be worth more than any business degree. Are there any other comics that, that you think are particularly useful? Not in that regard, not in a business sense. Um, again, I haven't had a newspaper in a long time. So the last comic strips I've read were, um, Look, if you want to understand boys, if you have a son and you want to understand boys, read Calvin and Hobbes. Um, if you have to work with a lot of midwits and want to know how to navigate midwits, look for Get Fuzzy and Pearls Before Swine. I don't even know if they're still in print, but you can buy the books off Amazon. Those two strips will teach you how to deal with midwits. Um, outside of that, uh, that's 
you know, the far side was always funny, but I don't think it could do anything to, but those other two actually, you'll meet a lot of midwits who are characters in Get Fuzzy and Girls Before Swine. Helped me a lot in my 20s when I was in the middle. Yeah, I gotcha. So one of the things I noticed when I was younger is that I, I sucked as an entrepreneur, not not for lack of trying, but I just didn't have whatever it was that tells you what customer demand is, you know? I mean, obviously I can look at a business selling things and be like, okay, obviously people want to buy that. But unless it was being transacted, I just didn't have a good sense for what people would want to buy if they weren't already buying it. I guess I'm wondering, is there is there a place where you learn that or is that just like you got to be out in the street, man, and, and talking to customers? I think that is an instinct and not a skill. I know a lot of people selling courses will tell you otherwise, but for the same reason I can't pick winning stocks, I can't tell you what's a good product to put into your store or e-commerce or whatever, unless you're already selling it. It's why the only type of e-commerce I do is products I create for myself. Uh, you know, mostly it's either farm related or it's uh, book related for the books I write um, because I can't look at the current trend of TikTok videos and say, that product is going to be the one that goes crazy. I have zero ability to do that um, because like, like I watch, uh, I, I, I used to watch. And if you do watch that show, Shark Tank, not just try to pick out what the offers are going to make for what products I can never get it right. I never know what they're thinking about, why they think that's a good product, why they think that's a bad product. I'll look at them and be like, man, I would buy that product. That's a great product. And then watch as they tear it down and go, oh, wow, I'm the only person on earth who would buy that product. I understand now. Like things like that. Um, that's just why I'm not good in that space. I stick to what I know, which is the things I can grow because people want, people want grass fed organic food. And I, I make that and that, or I should say soon I make that. I'm not, I don't have the organic cert yet, but that's a little side story we can go into later if you want of, of bureaucratic nonsense paperwork. But my point being is I think the people who are really good at that, um, knowing pr the product space are the people who have an instinct who can correlate between conversations with people, social media, movies, whatever, as they're consuming and to just be able to look and understand the feel that people have. I think that's a kind of instinct, but I mean, if you find one of them online programs that works, send it my way. That's been my experience too. And, and that's why I always crack up when I see these dudes on Twitter who are like, copy my program. I, you know, I, I build new fashion products that sell and I'm like, that's, that is total instinct, man. I could do that all day long and I would not be successful. And you could tell me all of your tricks and I would not be successful. That is not my instinct. I also know that I don't make purchasing decisions in line with 90% of the people. I definitely don't make purchasing decisions similar to the way women do. And I don't make purchasing decisions similar to the way most men do. So I'm just, I, I've just accepted that I'm not a consumer product guy. I will not be able to tell you what will sell next year or what's about to be good at being sold. I am good at selling things that exist and I'm good at improving on things that already exist. Um, and so what's funny is uh, I think Nick Huber, the guy who, who wrote Sweaty Startup, he's a big fan of like the trades and, and you know other blue collar businesses that are just run of the mill businesses that are in every town. And he says, dude, don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent the wheel. There are people out there making money who are way dumber than you way lazier than you who are just doing something that's proven to work and they make a slight improvement on it or they find a spot where it's just the market's not being served that's that's basically what i would have to do to be successful yeah and 
And so some things happen by purely by instinct and how your brain is, is built, you know, like, again, so not to beat the Dilbert thing to death, but think about it. Why is it that you can read so many Dilbert strips and go, that's happened in my office. I've seen that happen, but yet you could never look at your own personal experience and write a Dilbert strip. However, if you sat down with Scott Adams for five minutes and just told him what happened to you in the last 24 hours, he'd be able to write several strips on it, you know, and it's just because he can look at it through that lens. Um, you know, he's got that, that pattern recognition instinct of what, you know, what's what and how people work and whatnot. It's also why he, you know, if you listen to his podcast, I don't listen to it daily. Um, and there's no reason to listen to him. You know, he, he, he talks, does a recap of the last 24 hours. Right. So, uh, if you don't listen to it within 24 hours, wait till the next one comes out. Um, but anyway, he's really good at predicting the future in that regard. Like, you know, he called that the stock market was going to go up in 2023, um, not based on a, any economic matrix, but just based off of people and news and kind of like, you know, he kind of understands that the stock market's all fake. He doesn't say it that way, but he understands that the way it moves up and down has nothing to do with the financials of the company. It has to do with people's behavior of buying and selling. So he's always really good at predicting those types of things. Although it always comes with a disclaimer of never take financial advice from a cartoonist. He doesn't get it right all the time, but he's, his predictions are better than most. And it's just because he's got that instinct and that pattern recognition and pattern recognition is a huge part of it. Why do you think he has so much staying power? Like he's been out of the corporate world for a long time now. A lot of these dudes who, who caught something then are successful and then ultimately they just go off a cliff kind of like Nassim Taleb I mean wrote some really brilliant stuff and now half of his tweets are retarded I think Scott pulled off something that no other YouTuber has been able to do and that he used YouTube as his stability mechanism I because there's something about fame and money that makes it impossible for you to have a functional marriage right we know that anytime and by the way, anytime you see somebody like from the Stupid Woman podcast or the um, Fresh and Fit, which is the Stupid Stupid Woman of Miami podcast, or anybody who brings in bimbos, and they start listening off all these high-value uh, multimillionaire men who are divorced, understand that that's, that's a bullshit metric because nobody of fame and fortune can maintain a marriage. Something happens after a certain dollar amount and a certain amount of fame that just makes a personal life completely fucking broken. Um it's actually a reason. It's a good reason that you don't want your net worth to go above 10 million is the fact that friends and family, friends and husbands, wives, etc., even your own kids become very hard to maintain. Anyways, um, I think after multiple divorces, the impossibility of dating with the money and fame he has um, and the other things that should be driving a man of his age to insanity, um, age, money and fame to insanity. He used uh, YouTube and his daily, because everywhere, even when he got married and then later divorced, on his honeymoon, he's doing daily podcasts where he just sits and talks for an hour. I think he created that, whether intentional or not, it became a mechanism to stay grounded. So he, does he use the actual, what keeps him grounded? Is it the interactions with, with viewers and, and like the, the shit they'll throw at him or what? Yeah, he has a very loyal following of people who listen to him and interact. So he's not just talking. He's, he's got live streams going on multiple platforms. So he talks to people. He'll read comments and he'll ask people, hey, what do you think about this? You know, yes or no question or left or right question. And he'll read it off and go, oh, wow, most of you disagree with me on this. Well, I'll think about that. Or 
now here's why I think all of you are wrong and I'm right, but he doesn't, he doesn't do the chest thumping type stuff. He doesn't do the egomaniac stuff. Um, he does admit when he's wrong. Um, it's just, I think he created a community that kind of holds him accountable to continuing like accountable in a lot of ways, right. To continue podcasting every morning, to continue to be right. What you talk about. And he actually does a kind of service if you would phrase it that way. So everything online is panic, right? You go to Twitter, it's panic. If you, you know, Twitter is like panic inside of a panic situation, right? You're inside of a building on fire. Everybody's panicking. And one guy jumps up, starts throwing gasoline around in there. Cause if you're not panicking enough, that's Twitter. Um, you know, he talks about, so especially during election years like this, everybody's always really ramped up. Everybody's really stressed. And he just kind of talks people down a little bit to say, Hey, you know, this is bad but it could be worse or this is bad, but here's what I think will happen to stop it. You know? Yeah. This is a, this is a, he, um, you the, the Scott Adams law of slow moving disasters. Uh, remember what a year or two ago when, um, our diesel reserves were out like 20 days and everybody's panicking over that. And he goes, guys, they got 20 days to ramp up production at the refinery and we're not going to have to worry about it. And sure enough, you never heard about that story ever again. You know, they ramped up production. They, they, got the reserves back up, et cetera. You know, he'll talk about something they're panicking for a year from now and they're like, okay, well, we got a year. I, I guarantee something's going to pop up because somebody's going to want to make money solving this problem, et cetera. Right. So he, he does that. And it, it's a calming effect when people get stressed. It's like, oh, everybody's freaking out. The market's going to crash. Let me go see what Scott Adams has, has to say. And it's not that he's just saying the opposite of all the doomsayers. He's just talking about ways in which things don't have to be that bad. And it's not a daily thing. It's not every episode, but in general, he's less prone to stir up panic. Even when he's talking about negative things, right? He'll talk about illegal immigration in the sense that if this continues the way it is, it's going to ruin our nation. Well, he's not running around screaming at the top of his lungs. Oh my God, we, you know, we're all, you know, the, the nation's over. He's just a very calm, matter of fact manner of this is bad. It needs to be fixed or else there's a bigger problem. And that is a sense compared to other YouTubers, podcasters, streamers, influencers, that is actually kind of a public service because it's a calming effect when everybody else rage baits and panic baits. Yeah. Um, are there other people who kind of serve that function as well? Just kind of bringing people back to their senses? Not that I've seen or listened to regularly. Um, Michael Malice kind of is a check on too much panic because he grew up in the Soviet Union and you read his book, The White Pill. Um, you can find out how much worse it can get, although he's also an instigator and most of his life is spent poking bears. So um, he kind of shows you the ridiculousness of a lot of the panickers, but it's not the same thing as calming, you know. Um, but I'm sure there are people who are talking in a calming manner, but a lot of them are just every day the sky is falling and it's it's left and right. You know, I mean, you know, on the left wing, they're going to tell you Orange Hitler is going to destroy the world every day. But on the right, you've got the same thing of if we don't if we don't elect Orange Man, the country's over. Last election ever. This is we're done. And I'm like, yeah, I've heard that before. I heard that in 2020, 2016, 2012. 20, I, I've heard this every election. But this is the one. This is the one where it's the last one. You know, until the next election. Do uh, you think Cerno fits in that box, or, or where does he fit on the on the uh, um, reasonability versus the the throwing a fit thing? Which way is the wind blowing? Cerno takes both sides. And like, 
It's not that he takes both sides of the argument. He's not one of those types, but he'll be showing you one day. Like I think he, his moods are a little less regulated than than somebody like Scott Adams because Cerno will talk about how much worse things could be, how things weren't that bad when when they were bad or that type of stuff. And then the next day he's talking like he's pointing out all these people who are just burning the nation down going, this is it guys, we're done. So, you know, Cerno is a bit of a drama queen on Twitter. Uh, he's, he's another one like Jack Posobiec. It's a lot better when he's guest star on somebody's podcast because you can get some sense out of them. But on Twitter, just so much drama. So that's that's exactly what I would expect from somebody who needs eyeballs, right? You put a lot of stuff out there, and hopefully you catch a few eyeballs for whatever you're saying, and and then you can get a get a bigger audience, catch uh, cast a bigger net. What I'm interested in is why is there only room for one, maybe two guys whose whose brand is being reasonable? What why why are they able to get eyeballs, and why can't anybody else follow that lead or find a spot in the ecosystem? Um, have you ever read Thinking Fast and Slow? Uh, it's by Daniel Kahneman and a guy who um, essentially that, I think that's the first book that outlined the four to one effect of negative versus positive, right? So if you go to a casino and you put a dollar down and you win $4, right? Um, that high you get off of winning $4 can be negated by losing $1, right? So um, if you, make a bet, lose $1, make a bet, win a dollar. You don't go, Hey, I'm back to being broken. Even you go, I can't believe I just lost that dollar. Uh, if you make another bet and you win a second dollar, now you have $2, you're still thinking about that lost dollar, right? So it's a four to one effect, negative to positive. Um, people now kind of correlate that away from money, but just to information, negative feelings create a lot of, um, I don't know if it's dopamine, but it, it, it's addictive, right? Drama is addictive. So it really gets your brain amped up looking for more. And you have to consciously look for positive feelings. And you have to get a lot of positive to negate the negative. So if you're not a person who's consistently looking for positive in your, your media sources, podcast, Twitter, you get addicted to the negative, right? And then you need four times as much positive to negate the effect of the negative. And the negative is that much more addicting. You know, that's the thing is you need four times the positive and the positive not as addicting. So it, it's really, you, you just need a lot more positive and people are, are actively seeking negative because there's, it's addicting and there's also like a righteousness in being angry. If I can be angry at you, well, then I don't have to take you seriously, right? So if I can just be angry at you all the time, then everything you say can be ignored. So definitely understand those things. Why is it that only Scott Adams is is able to do it? Like I definitely understand the, the balance is skewed towards sensationalism and anger and all the things that you see on Twitter, et cetera. But what, what is it that Scott Adams figured out and why isn't anybody else doing it? How is there only room for him? Pareto distributions. I mean, that's a simple answer. There's other people doing it, but they don't have the popularity. So in the scope of positive uh, podcasters or positive influencers, you know, he occupies the top 20%, you know, he, he's the nested greater distribution, right? He, he accounts for probably close to 50% of all the positivity. And again, he doesn't brand himself that way. There's nobody who's out there right now listening. Anybody who listens to this isn't going to go, Oh yeah, Scott Adams is my go-to for positive news. It's subtle. He's not branding himself as the positive news guy. He's just kind of branded himself as being right more often than he's wrong. 
Mm-hmm. That's the closest yeah. you would get to it. And the, he's he's right in positive sense more often than he's wrong. The the other person that I've seen be relatively stable and reasonable and and evidence based and all that stuff, um, and not sensationalist, is uh, Lynn Lynn Alden. Right. And I mean, she deals with stuff that that's highly sensationalized, right? Like she writes about Bitcoin a lot. She writes about finance a lot. Those things are highly sensationalized. The world is ending. You need to dump all your stocks, blah, blah, blah. She, I almost never see her say something like that. And in fact, she, she always takes this sort of when somebody posts something ridiculous, she, she goes completely off the other end of the scale, like the most measured response that you could ever imagine in the face of, or right back to somebody yelling in her face. <laughs> You know, that's a good point. I So I'm also the wrong person to ask on this because since my last Twitter account got nuked and I've restarted my Twitter, I follow like 20 people now as opposed to like 200 before. So I'm, I've really, I, I've unplugged quite a bit. I don't spend as much time on Twitter anymore. Um, I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts, but a lot of them are not about current events. They're they're history or religion based or this or that informative ones that aren't pegged to a date. Kind of like the way we do these conversations are relevant at any time. I want something where I can listen to a backlog of episodes of stuff that doesn't expire a day later. Um, so Scott Adams is kind of my go-to if I'm in the gym to listen to or if I'm going on a long car ride and need to download something because I'm going through no cell service. That's one of my just automatic go-tos because it'll just it'll be an hour's worth of noise to get me through until I get, you know, service again. Right. So, um, I know there's more out there, but I'm not actively seeking them. So I can't answer on that. How do you keep all the stimuli from overwhelming your brain? So when I'm driving, I very purposely have no sound. I have nothing on the radio. I have nothing. I'm not listening to an audiobook. I just need my brain to relax. And I do that several times a day, even if I'm not driving. Uh, cause otherwise it's just, man, it, like I never actually process the things that I've encountered that day. And I miss most of the opportunities in that day. If I don't have that, that dead time, where do you get it? Well, when I drive, like if I'm going to town, it's a 10 minute drive, 15 minute drive, but most of my drive drives are like two hours, three hours, one way, because I live in a very isolated area. And if I live, if I drive three hours in silence, I'm going to drive the car off the road just to, so, so something exciting can Right. Like I can't, I cannot do long car rides in silence. So I need the background noise, but I'm not always listening to it is the thing. Um, like human events daily, the, 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 the Jack Basovic one, Tim cast, those I'll put on in the background. Cause sometimes I don't listen to the whole podcast. I tune in and out, but they'll bring up a thing that gets me thinking about something. Right. And then I go off daydreaming about that. And, my wife will catch me on it sometimes because she'll be listening and I'm not. She's like, what does he mean by that? I'm like, I have no fucking idea. Well, I wasn't, I haven't been paying attention for the last 20 minutes, but the background noise stimulates my mind. Likewise, I rarely listen to music unless when I'm trying to, so I listen to music when I get stuck in my writing because I write fiction. When I get stuck in a scene or I can't figure out how to do something, I play music that's appropriate to that scene and I could daydream for, you know, three hours on my way to the city, three hours back, just listening to the same types of music, whether it be fast music, slow music, action type, be a rock metal or something soft or sad, depending on what the scene is. And I will just daydream the whole way there and back until I figure out the chapter. And then I go home and write it. 
because that's that, kind that of might be an entire podcast on its own just talking about that process uh it, it always amazes me creatives their process for harnessing whatever it is that's flying through your brain yeah we can do that another episode but um it's i write myself into a lot of corners i'll put it that way because i don't write out the plot of the book i kind of make the characters and then i discover who they are as they're going and you know i don't even like uh, i'm writing I could say this because I'm going to write, I'm going to publish this book under a different name than my normal one. I jumped genres. I'm writing my first science fiction and I might publish it under this name since it's not in any way related to my other books. But, um, I, I'm a third of the way through the book. I still don't know who the main enemy is, the, the motivations behind, behind the enemy and this stuff, because the main character hasn't figured it out yet. And as I'm discovering who he is, I'm getting his motivations for why he's dealing with the enemy and how he's going to respond at the same time that he is, you know, like I'm basically writing as he experiences it. And it's, um, it's hard because I don't know where it's going. <laughs> and it's, uh, that's not how a lot of writers that I know, they like to plot out the whole thing and they'll have all 50 or 20 chapters. Here's what happens next year. And then they, they make it happen. I can't write that way. Cause it becomes forced. It's like, you know, every time I think that book's going to go a certain direction, I realize like, no, in this situation, this guy's going to do this thing. This girl's going to do the opposite. And that's going to create this problem. Now I have to address this problem. Well, once I address that problem, I go, oh, fuck, we're, we're in a whole new spot. Like, you know, where is this going? And it always works out well. You know, all my other books go exactly like that. And by the time we get done with it, you know, by the time I get done with it, it, uh, my, my audience loves it. The people who read them, they always love it, but I can't plot that way. It's just me. So that's why when I get stuck on something, the music helps. Cause it's like, I just daydream until, until I get through it. That's interesting. So it's a much more organic process than like the structured or engineered process that say like, is it JK Rowling? If she uses something like that. I have no idea how she writes, but my God, I would love to be able to do something as good as her, whether or not you like Harry Potter the intricacies of her world building and the way she laid out the predictive nature of her books without contradicting themselves as they went, she had a massive vision for that story. And I mean, she made stories within stories and worlds within worlds. Like that is, I'll piss off a lot of people when I say this, but I think that J.K. Rowling is the J.R. Tolkien of our generation, of this century. Um, whether or not you like Harry Potter is irrelevant. It's she has laid the groundwork now that the next 50 years easily of wizard books is going to be based off of Harry Potter in the sense that people aren't going to world build and explain magic. They're just, it's just going to be just like we have fantasy novels that are Tolkien in nature where the elves are you know, beautiful and have bows and the dwarves are all short gold obsessed and, and carrying axes and whatnot. You know, they use Tolkien as their basis for fantasy. People are going to, for the next 50 years easily, are going to use um, J.K. Rowling as the basis for wizardry. And it's not going to be plagiarism so much as just, this is this is the rules of wizardry, now we're moving on. Um, so I would love to be able to build a world as intricate as that. I would, I would definitely say, I, would, I don't know how she does it. She's definitely, she is... She's the nested Pareto distribution of, of authors. She's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Huh, interesting. I, you mentioned something a little bit ago when you were talking about Scott Adams, and you said uh, fame makes it impossible to have a successful marriage or personal life. 
I think you actually said fame and, and fortune makes your personal life go go horribly awry. Is it is it both? Do you have to have both, or is it just fame? Like, what's what's the necessary ingredient, and where's the threshold where it's like, okay, if you have this much fame and this much money, good luck. Or can you be like really really unknown? So like a bowtie bull who claims to be worth what like twenty or thirty million dollars, um, and still have a good life. I have ho- no hard numbers for any of that, but the general the general thesis is this: if you have so much money and people know it that they can't talk to you like a human being, you know, like nobody can talk to Elon Musk in a normal manner, right? Maybe Joe Rogan get away with it, but you know, you're going to meet Elon and just, you're just like, my God, you're worth as much as a country. You know, you're worth hundreds of billions. How do I even talk to you? It's like, you know, he's, this is a guy who's, you know, built a satellite-based internet service and he's putting rockets all the way out there and then he's making electric cars and then he does X, he does this and that. And you're like, I got, I got some lint in my belly button, dude. Like that's my life achievement next to you. Um, so you can't talk to him in a normal manner. What woman is going to fit into his lifestyle? And that's one of the reasons why he's got like 90 kids by 90 women, right? Um, because the guy like that is just all over the damn place. But you take the celebrities, the sports stars, they can't go anywhere without people just throwing themselves at them all the time. And they got so damn much money. It's like, how do you be authentic as a woman to a man like that? Um, and now it can be done because we know there are like, um, what was, was it Kobe that uh, died in a helicopter crash? I'm not up on sports ball. I think it was Kobe. I think he had a wife and kids and he had actually a pretty functional and stable marriage, which made it all the more tragedy. Right. There are people who do it, but the odds get less and less and less. And it's just because, you know, human beings, British author wrote this once uh, about human beings have a, a fundamental flaws that they get weak in the knees. You know, people bend at the knee to other men. And these once you are above a certain amount of wealth and fame, you're, you're a demigod and people bend the knee to you no matter what, because they just want a little piece of what you have whether it's actual money or just approval from you or to, you know, just get touched by you once. Like, you know, you've, you're just, you're not human anymore in a in a sense. And, you know, how do you operate like that? How do you operate a marriage in that environment? I wonder if Elon would say that his personal life is what he wants it to be because it's oriented in a way that allows him to do the things, you know, his mission in life, right? Oh, I'm sure he would. Like, again, when you're, He's a special case too, because he's you know very high IQ, probably an alien. Don't know that for sure, but I play. I bet my money that him and Zuck are both aliens from warring species. That's my running fear. Uh, they're just too weird. But Elon, if we're going to pretend that he's human, much higher IQ, definitely on the autism spectrum. I think he may have been diagnosed. Not sure, um, but he's definitely on the spectrum of something. Like he ain't normal. So to try to fit him into the box that you or I might try to get into with like successful business owner with wife and kids. Yeah. That's never going to work for him. Like he just doesn't operate on the same plane as the rest of us. He's, he's on a, a higher order. So it's just, he's not an example to look to for anything marriage related, especially for somebody who's like, I'd like to be a hundred air. I'd like to be a thousand air, you know, never mind millionaire. I just want a few hundred bucks in my pocket and a, and a nice wife. Um, there's nothing in the world of Elon that's relatable to normal human beings. 
So do you think it's possible to be relatively unknown, so not famous at all, and in, and very private, but very wealthy, and be happy and, and have kind of a normal life? Or is that is that sacrificed as well? You can. I just don't know what the dollar amount is that changes, right? And you have to be super selective about your wife. Um, now, it's very easy for me to sit here and say that, like, if my net worth went up to $50 million, it wouldn't nuke my marriage because my wife is wonderful and all that. Every man says that, um, you know, my wife and I are technical millionaires. Like we, we could be on the Dave Ramsey show for being millionaires because our net worth is over a million, but we do not have a million in, in cash in the bank. You know, we're not, our, our pockets aren't lined with hundred dollar bills. Um, so for us to 20 X or 50 X our income, like what would that do to us? I don't know assuming that we weren't famous for it. Like I, I, it's hard to imagine my wife losing her mind just because she hasn't lost it yet. Um, if she was going to lose her mind, she would have by now she's in her forties. Like she should have gone bonkers and she hasn't. So that's kind of my indicator that things would be okay. But I don't know. I'd have to really get into it more to see the successful marriage rates of people with that kind of money and no fame. Um, I do know some multimillionaire Christians who are in the five to $10 million net wealth range, maybe a little more. And they're married. Well, that's a tough one actually, because the people I'm thinking of, they're still married after 40 years, but it's not a marriage I would want to be in. So not because of cheating or abuse, but just because they don't, it's just weird. Um, anyways, I'm rambling on that. So I guess the law, the, it comes down to, I really don't know. I don't know what it takes at that threshold to be successful. If I get there, I'll tell you. Yeah, I gotcha. It, it always cracks me up. The, the crypto millionaires that I've met, meaning uh, that they, they just rode the you know the Ponzi waves or the, the pump and dump cycles. They got in and got out at the right time and still haven't figured out yet that there was no value made. It was just money changed hands and it ended up in their pocket before it, before it left. <laughs> um, but they, man, they, they always seem to have the hardest time with money because it's like winning the lottery right they they didn't build anything they didn't have to have any real principles they didn't have to produce any value for anybody else uh and so those people i've seen really struggle with wealth and it just destroys them as a person just same way that you know when a when a person wins the lottery well yeah and yeah you can see that all over um social media uh tiktok youtube and stuff a lot of these um millionaires that are you know telling you what they did it's like all you did dude was buy bitcoin early because somebody told you to, or you bought freaking Dogecoin and sold it the one week it was doing really well. Or what, like you bought a shit coin lottery ticket and you won. It wasn't because you're smart. It's because you, you just did the right thing at the right time. And now you're, you, you got nothing, you know, there's nothing going on with you. So yeah, I, I don't take any of the crypto series, uh, millionaires seriously. Cause it's like, can you replicate your results? No, but you see, they do destroy their, you know, the ones who don't go broke. Sorry. A lot of them went broke right away because they destroyed their life because they just they just ran with the money with no idea how to keep money coming in. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have any more comments there. I was just kind of thinking about my drive today and how I started I was driving a car. I not, don't mean to hard shift on you here, but why, why are people stuck driving 10, 15, 20 miles an hour under the speed limit? They're literally there's literally not enough processing power to run those NPCs. I keep running this every day. Um, just, I, I know I threw a curveball in there. Just have you, are you seeing that too? Or am I going crazy? 
Um, I'm not in the right place to ask because I live in the middle of Boomerville in the back roads. So everybody's doing 20 miles an hour all the time. But I'm hearing people talk about slow drivers and crazy drivers. It seems like they're occupying the extremes. Because um, I see and hear people talking about almost like they won't, when their light turns green at a stoplight, they don't just step on the gas. They look left and right, and then they go. Because the amount of people who are running red lights is massive right now. Um, crazy shit like that. So uh, I think just in general, people are losing it. And they're either losing it with their pedal to the metal, or they're losing it and they're just in their own world. Like you said, not enough processing power, and they're just tootling along in life. Yeah, I, I absolutely do that. Look both ways before I go into the intersection. I got T-boned by somebody who ran a ten, like a five-second red light at about 50, 55 miles an hour. So if you think about that, the light is timed for 50 or 55-mile-an-hour speed limits. So that yellow was really long. Then the red was five seconds. And there's a whole line of cars now, a separate line of cars going through the intersection. This dude just plows through the line of cars, happens to hit me. T-boats me at 50 miles an hour, totals both cars. That kind of thing all over the place now. So yeah, I I definitely clear both directions as far as I can see. And if I can't see, I I just keep pace with the person next to me so that so that they blunt the impact. <laughs> oh, uh, definitely. As as I'm driving down the road and I, I pass one of these cars driving 20 under the speed limit, I slow down as I'm going by him and I look over into the you know the car next to me. And I just half expect the person to like fade in and out or or like zzz and they'll like half their body will disappear or something. I, I swear it's like a, a episode from Rick and Morty or something. Well, you know, and we talked about this. I don't know if it was, it was while recording or not, but anymore, if I see, like if I post a comment on Twitter about a certain technical issue and somebody says, I've never seen that before. I think that person's an NPC. Like, because I hit tech issues all the damn time. I know you hit them all the time because you, you message me in frustration. Um, my wife has tech issues. Like real people have real issues. And when people are like, oh, I've never had that happen to me before. That's when I start thinking, okay, you're not a real person. My next follow-up question to this, then is, do you hang out outside your office and send people on random tasks all day? Like, you know, are you sending people on side quests? Is that your job? Because more like I... I laughed when I heard this in theory the first time. I was like, oh, this is just repackaged theology. And now I'm like more and more going, there's got to be something to this because there can't be this many people that are so robotic and not real. I'm just, I'm floored by this. But I wonder if we can start a list of NPC activities and like stuff that we've seen. Like everybody who swears he drove around the block once and there was, there was no houses around or like no houses this person could have disappeared into and the person disappeared like within a few seconds. And he was like, I swear to God, they, they despawned. <laughs> but I, I wonder if we could keep a list of these things that we're seeing, you know, obviously self-reported and, and maybe, maybe we're not the best sources ever, but I bet that list would get really long, really fast and may, may make us crazy. I don't know. You ever watch Star Trek, the next generation? Um, they've got the holodeck in there, which is like this big hologram simulation room. They go in and they can pretend they're doing whatever. And it's, it creates whatever world you want. But every now and then they'll show you like, hey, we're still stuck in the holodeck and they'll throw a physical object and they'll hit the wall. They're like, see, we're, we're at the edge of the, the simulation here. And every now and then I just kind of pick up a rock and throw it, expecting it to go bonk and go up. Oh, that's the end of it. That's the end of the world. 
<laughs> the world ends at my driveway. <laughs> I can't remember what show it was, but it was, oh, maybe it was Rick and Morty. It was like you're on a treadmill, and if you overload the processing, then you can then you can actually get to the edge of the simulation. But as long as you haven't overloaded the processing, it'll just keep you on the treadmill. You won't get to the edge. Yeah. And you know what's scary about that now is they're getting, they have sneakers that go with VR with a little treadmill in it. So you can walk and stay in the same place. So you're going to have simulation inside the simulation real fast. That, that would be really funny. Could you imagine if we played a prank on someone and put several people in there, just like standing in place and walking and everything just freezes and they're, they're the only person moving through the the scene. <laughs> they're like, Holy crap. I am the, the main character. <laughs> I'm waiting to find the real life pause button and it's like, oh crap, everybody's frozen. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot of sidetracks on that. But anyways, um I think I am out of processing power for today. Um I think that's about all I've got in me. So is there anything you want to add to the things we've talked about today? No, man, that's good. I just wish that I'd started on, on Dilbert a lot earlier. Probably would have saved me from doing too many uh, pointy haired boss things. I'm telling you, if you have to invest some time in some fiction, that's probably the best investment of your time. Uh, I'll throw one other shout out to that, which is uh, the British author by the name of Terry Pratchett, who does not get enough. Like He's got a pretty big following. He's dead now, but he um, doesn't get enough recognition for his works. If you want to understand corporations, banking, government, read the books, going postal and making money by Terry Pratt. For as much satire and fantasy and fiction uh, that they are, they are a really good insight into the interactions of corporations, government, and, and you'll also, you will never laugh so hard as read when you read them. So with that, I think I'll say uh, Happy New Year for one, everybody. I know we're a couple weeks into the new year, but Happy New Year. Um, you can find me now on Twitter at Cult Wi-Fi Farmer. And you can find us on Substack, of course, at Wi-Fi Pioneers at Substack.com. I'm hoping to have some more articles coming your, your way soon. Uh, but, you know, real world, of course, pending on that. So thank you. And everybody have a good weekend. Have a good week. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves.